Thankful that you made it here this morning. Thankful for your willingness to love one another in fellowship. Uh, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Uh, the ushers, if you guys would come forward. Uh, we'll take our offering here. So thank you for doing that. This morning, my hope is to go through verses 9 through 11 in chapter 5. But this, uh, let us start, just let's read 7 through 12 to get the context, and then uh, we'll go from there. So 7 through 12, it reads, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you, troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, if you didn't get to listen to the sermon last week, uh, I encourage you to go ahead and um, take a listen to it again. Uh, it was a really helpful exhortation and an encouragement to run well. And this morning, we will continue in this passage, and I want to also encourage you to run well. But as we start, I just want to take a minute or two to just encourage you and praise God for the ways in which you have been running well, because you have been running well, church. I am grateful to God for all the ways in which he has been at work in the life of our church. And it is really a privilege to see, to get to see, it. and as I look and even just look out in this room and consider all of you this morning and what God has taught you and where he's brought you from and what he's brought you through, and it's worthy of praise, you are stronger in your doctrine you are stronger in your doctrine. Yet at the same time, you're also more humble. You've grown in your love for God and for the saints. You men have grown in taking responsibility. You've grown in being strong. As many of you who were just boys, even just a few years ago, and God has taught you and disciplined and shaped you up, to now be leading your families well. You women, you've grown in meekness and in gentleness, and you really are such a help to all of us in the church. You have grown so much in your capacity to serve your families and others, and seeing that from this side is really just a delight. So I just want to tell you, I'm proud of you, and I'm thankful to God for the work that he's done in you and our church. There is so much worthy of commendation. So just hear it. You are running well. You're running well. Now I want to continue and exhort you to continue to run well. This morning what we will do is take a look at some of the dangers, though, that are ahead of you. Because this race is a lifelong race, and I want to continue and help you press on and persevere. And there are many enemies to your Christian walk. There's three main enemies they should be aware of. One is your heart or your flesh. Two is the world. 
And three is the devil. This morning, my hope is to take a look at those first two. Your heart as an enemy and the world as your enemy. And may God help us understand these dangers and find help in him. So let us pray. Our most gracious Father, we need your help. Father, there are so many dangers ahead for us. There are so many who wish that we would stop pursuing you, that we would be distracted from trusting in you, that we would put our trust in anything but you. Father, you know our hearts. They're deceitful. They're prone to wander. You know the pressures of the world. You know the days ahead and the months ahead for our church, Lord, better than any of us know them. So, Father, this morning I plea and I beg for your help. Would you sustain us? Would you teach us? Would you open our eyes? Would you help us to walk wisely? Not complacently, but wisely. And may we give the glory to you and you alone. So help us this morning to hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Your first enemy is your heart, your own heart. Your heart is tempted to go astray. Let's look at verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, what does this mean? Here, Paul is talking about the danger of allowing false doctrine to creep in. What is the leaven? The leaven is false doctrine. And just a little bit of leaven and false doctrine can leaven the whole lump. This illustration is helpful, especially for those of you who enjoy making bread. Uh, It's very helpful just to get a picture of what Paul is talking about here. So, for those of you who enjoy making bread, everyone know, how much leaven does it take to make bread rice? Right? Compared to how much flour you're putting in, not really that much at all. I had to learn a little bit this week because I was completely unaware. Uh, but from what I saw, when my wife was telling me, it's basically about 1%. Okay, so if, you're, if you want to make 100, you're using 100 grams of flour. Forgive me for all the ways I'm going to misspeak this. 100 grams of flour for your bread that you're making, you need about one gram of yeast or whatever leavening agent you're using. Okay? And I know it varies on recipe, but more or less 1%. 1% of the whole recipe is what makes the bread rice. What happens if you forget to put it in? Okay, what happens if you're busy, you put in the water, you forget to put in the yeast, and what's going to happen is your bread will not rise. Can that 1% really make that much of a difference? The answer is yes, it does. It will leaven the whole lump. The whole lump is dependent on that 1%. So the leaven here being false doctrine reminds us that in order to run this race, this Christian race, you will need pure and undefiled doctrine. And the problem with that is that your heart is wicked and is prone to deception. And even just a small seed of false doctrine can affect your whole heart. Let me say this. Both your theology and your Christian living, the practice, 
Theology and practice both matter. They impact one another. How so? Your bad theology will lead you to sin. And I think a lot of us see that pretty easily. But also, your sin can compromise your theology. How so? Well, one of the most common ways that you do this is by excusing your sin. You love your sin. And maybe in the past you've, you know that it's not good and you've tried to fight it and you found mixed success fighting it and it's been years now and you're getting tired of fighting it. And so what happens a lot of the time is people will compromise on their doctrine in order to make allowances for their sin. People will say things like, well, it's not that bad if I only do it once. It's not going to harm anyone else. It's just me. So can it really be as bad as the Bible says? We say things like, you know, my anger to my spouse or my despair, the way things are, it's all justified. If you knew what I was going through, what I was going through, you would know that it just all justified. We say things like, I can, I can move in with my girlfriend before getting married. We deceive ourselves and say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything specifically about that, right? We're not going to do anything. And many of us know that what happens next is, Your tone changes, and what you're saying is, well, we are sleeping together, but it's not that bad because we're going to get married, right? So it's all fine. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Church, if you agree with what 99% of the Bible says, but then you harbor deceit in 1%, you're not allowing your heart to humble yourself before God and His Word, your running could be compromised. Now, some of you, like me, are so concerned with just your living and your practice that you neglect the role of your theology. Right? You only focus on what you can see, what others are doing, what you're doing. You say things like, well, as long as I don't sin in this way, then I'll be okay. As long as I don't drink, I'll be fine. As long as I read my Bible every morning and pray twice a day, then I must be doing just fine, right? Because the practice is all that matters. But your practice without right doctrine is just empty sacrifices. Especially for you, for those of you who feel like you're coasting and you feel like, man, I'm like, don't really feel like I'm making that much progress in my walk with the Lord. And you're just coasting and everything just seems like, well, just keep going back to the same things. It may be that you're just focusing on the outward and not on the heart. The truth is you're not going to want to obey God. You're not going to want to grow if you don't first believe the right things about God. If you don't know Christ and all of his benefits and all of his blessings, then your heart will continually want to run to the things that the world loves. God wants your heart. God wants all of your heart. Are there things that you're keeping from God? Are there areas in your life that you're saying, God doesn't have to be in that area of my life? 
Don't neglect the role of doctrine. Pure doctrine is a gift to you and to your run. So seek it, church. Seek it as the valuable treasure that it is. This matters. Your doctrine, your theology, it matters. From the outside, maybe those who aren't in the Christian faith and you're just reading, maybe you were in Paul's time and you're looking at the Jews and you say, well, you know, it feels like we agree. Paul agrees with the Jews on like so much. And it's just like this one little thing about circumcision. Is this really that big of a deal? Right? That small little issue, can it really make that much of a difference? That small leaven can compromise the whole lump. It's like the illustration of if a pilot, right, starts flying to its destination, but it's half a degree off, it'll likely completely miss his destination. Your theology matters. What you believe about justification is of first importance. That you believe that Jesus came as a perfect man, he died and he rose again, and is the only sufficient atonement for your sins, that is of first importance. But if you're also off on other things, like, do you believe what God's Word says about what men and women's responsibilities are? Those things matter. If you're off on things like abortion or homosexuality, and you don't call them a sin, those things can derail the rest of your theology. And some of you likely do this at church. You sit here, you listen to teaching, you're like, meh, 85% good today. Now, I know I will get things wrong, all right? And I'm just, I've just grown to the point where I'm just fine with it. Not fine. I just know it will happen. I'm just more at peace with it. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about why. But I'll get things wrong. You will get things wrong. Others in the church will get things wrong. Someone may come to you and tell you, hey, what you're doing is wrong. They might be off. They may not know the full picture. But if you're sitting here, if you're listening to what your brother is coming to tell you, and you have an issue with it, you have an issue with what they're saying, the teaching that you're receiving, the one thing that you shouldn't do is just stay silent and just judge your brother from afar. Bring it up. Doctrine is important. If one of your brothers is off on something, it is your responsibility to help you and to help him see it the right way. Maybe that he's wrong and he needs you. It may be that you're wrong and you need to be corrected. But if you're not willing to love and say something, you'll just harbor the seed and not even know it. You should love, church, you should love your brothers and sisters enough to bring these things up to them. Don't be complacent about your theology. Okay, let's return to the bread illustration for a second. At first, when you add the yeast, can you tell that it's doing anything? Not right away. Right? You add it, you mix it in with the water, you can't really tell that it's doing anything. But it's until you put it in the oven that the bread starts to rise. In a similar way, oftentimes false doctrine may live undetected in our hearts for years and years. But it is when we're pressed. And it is when the 
fires of trials come to our lives, that our doctrine will be tested, and the leaven will leaven the whole lump. So especially if you're in a season right now where things are good, do not be complacent about your place with God. Let this be a great time for you to grow in your theology, for you to know the true God, for you to know Christ, so that when trials do come, you'll be better prepared to handle them. Strive to keep your doctrine pure and make that a life resolution to pursue right doctrine in all areas of life. And how do you do that? You treasure God's word, you let it refine you, and then you let God's people sharpen you. And you do that over and over again. This is why it's really important that you are careful with who you associate with. That's why it's careful who you allow to influence you. The world is your second enemy. So I guess you can tell number two. Your enemy, second enemy number two. Enemy number two, the world. The world is always bombarding you with false doctrine, with lies. The media you fill your eyes with and your hearts is always preaching something to you. And the world just wants you to care about other things rather than the things of God. And the thing is, your enemies actually work together, right? It's because you have a sinful and deceitful heart that you're prone to follow after the things of the world. If you could see things rightly all the time, you would know that the things of the world really don't matter, that they're not as appealing as they might seem. Let's look at it in verse 11. And let's take a second there too, because I think it's somewhat of awkward wording. Um, in our Bibles, but verse 11, it reads, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. All right, what does he mean? Paul here is saying that if he were to preach circumcision as part of your justification, he would avoid persecution from Jews completely. If he just compromised on his position, he would actually remove the offense of the cross. Now we know that's true because after all, we know Paul was not against circumcision all the time. Right? He he came and he had Timothy come with him and get circumcised. So he was not against circumcision always. He was against circumcision as a means as part of your justification. But that was not enough for the Jews, right? Paul still upheld circumcision, but that was not enough for the Jews. They wanted it to be a requirement for salvation. And when Paul did not comply, they hated him for it. Absolutely hated him for it. Spoke evil of him, discredited his ministry. That's what we've seen in the book of Galatians. And the, Paul, the point here that Paul's making is, if he would just give in on this one point, his persecution would go away. The offense of the cross would be removed completely. And Paul knows that temptation is before him. Paul knows his heart. Paul knows the temptation that if he just wanted to pursue peace and he just wanted a break from all the oppression, all he would have to do is compromise on this one thing. And for you, church, 
the world will persecute you, will oppress you if you strive to keep your doctrine pure. Paul could have lowered his standards and he would have been received. And a lot of us, a lot of you have that same choice before you. At work, with your families, with your friends, all it takes is lowering your standards just a little bit and you would be received with open arms. You have a temptation to compromise all around you. You feel the pressure from others not to be an extremist. You feel the pressure to just settle for fake peace. Fake peace even though you know that there is no true peace. You feel the pressure to fit in with friends because you don't want to be alone. Now for time's sake, I'll just say, have faith in God. Have faith that what God offers is better than what the world can offer. You want peace? Don't settle for fake peace. True peace comes from obeying Jesus. Do you want glory? Do you just want glory for men so desperately? Why are you settling for the glory of man? It will pass. It will cease to exist. If you want glory, don't seek it from men. You will share in Christ's glory if you persevere until the end. That is far better. Far, far better. The world is your enemy, and it wants you to compromise. It wants you to take away the offense of the cross. The second half of 11. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I want to make a comment on that because it's a stark statement. The offense of the cross. Do you ever think of the cross as offensive? What do you think of when you think of the offense of the cross? Does it sound like an oxymoron? If the gospel of Jesus is good news... How can it be offensive? Some of you may have a hard time believing and then applying the truth that the cross of Christ should be offensive. A lot of us grew up thinking that the gospel of Jesus is sunshine and roses. And if anyone is ever offended by the preaching of the gospel, then that preacher must be doing something wrong. But is that what God's word says? Have faith in God's word. The cross should be offensive to sinners. All right? If you just think about it for a moment, it's just not a surprise at all. It's just the easiest thing to see. How is the cross offensive? Well, think about it. What does the cross stand for? When Jesus died on the cross, he made many statements, but among those, there's two big statements that Jesus hanging on the cross makes. First is, what you love is wicked. What you love is wicked. Your sin is evil. It is heinous in the eyes of God. It is so wicked and nasty that it needed the perfect Lamb of God to atone. Okay, that's offensive if you love your sin and you delight in your sin and you're told that is not right. 
What do you mean I can't do whatever I want with my money? What do you mean I can't do what I want when I want it? Okay, you hate being told that you have idols in your hearts. You hate being told that you made an idol of money or of comfort or of your children. Why? Because the cross is offensive to those desires. It stands against them. You've put them in a place that only God should hold in your heart. So the cross stands against your natural fleshly inclinations. That's offensive to those who love their sin. So the cross says what you love is wicked, and it calls you to repent. And the second statement that the cross makes is that you're not good enough. You are not good enough. Are you okay with that statement? Can I tell that to you? You're not good enough. The fact that Jesus had to die for you means that you were wicked and worthy of condemnation. It means that you're not capable to save yourself. That is a slap in the face to anyone who thinks highly of themselves. On your own, you're just not good enough. And the cross shows you that apart from Christ, you are a wicked man, and you think you're doing great, but all your works are just earning you the wrath of God, and you deserve to die. That your best of intentions are like filthy rags before God. Think about that, though. What can be more offensive than that? Just to be told that you cannot do anything good on your own. The cross offends your pride and should bring you low. You're not good enough. So the call is to trust in the one who is good enough. I want you to think about this when you're sharing the gospel. Next time you're sharing the gospel with your friends, with your families, your co-workers, what you are doing, you are inherently, you're offending sinners with the truth. That is what you're doing every time you share the gospel, which is why we hate sharing the gospel. So we are so afraid of evangelism because we do not want to be, we want to be at peace with men. We don't want to be in conflict with them. But the cross is a conflict. They have to choose Christ and they're choosing their sin. You wouldn't have to share the news of Jesus if they weren't lost. But people don't want to admit that they're lost. They want, to, they want you to tell them that they're doing a good job. The world, like the Jews, they still think that, okay, well, maybe I can do something to make it right. But we can't. Right, it only takes a few minutes of watching the world to know how offensive they think Christianity to be. True Christianity should be offensive to the world because they love their sin. The world hates it. The world hates Christ. And that should just not be a surprise to us. What does that mean for you, though? First, consider, have you ever come to the point where you found the cross offensive? 
Have you ever come to grips with the reality that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for the sins, that the sins that you hold on to so dearly are worthy of Jesus' death? Have you come to a point where you've chosen, where you have to decide between continuing to live in your sin or choosing to follow Jesus? You can't do both. The cross tells you that your sin is offensive and you need to die. The cross tells you that you're guilty and you need to die. Have you come to the point where you recognize that it is better to die to yourself and to your desires and to choose to cling to the cross instead? So if you haven't repented, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, then let the offense of the cross actually drive you to your knees, church. Secondly, this has great implications with how you talk about the gospel with others. Practical implications, right? When you share the gospel, do you do it in a way that removes the offense of the gospel quickly? If you're doing that, you're not preaching a complete gospel. If a lost sinner finds the gospel interesting and appealing, it's likely that you haven't applied it to them personally. The gospel can sound really great from a distance, right? What, you mean there's, there's a God out there who wants to forgive me of my sins and who loves me and who wants to give me a good life? That sounds great, right? But if the gospel means I have to change how I live, if the gospel means I have to, I can no longer live as I wish, I have to humble myself and submit myself to the king of kings, if the gospel means that I'm not good enough and I must die to myself, whoa, that's too close, right? That's offensive. How dare you tell me that? Sad thing is that there's many in the world today that live with an incomplete understanding of the gospel and who think that they're doing well before God and they're just dying in their sins. We, all many, we know many who fall in that camp ourselves. We have family members, friends, who think that they're doing just fine. Question is, doesn't love require you to go deeper with them? Wouldn't true compassion actually compel you to be honest about their condition, even if it causes great offense? Church, have faith to preach a gospel that may be offensive to others. And you don't even have to go out of your way to be offensive just to be offensive, right? Just for offense's sake. No, you just have to speak the truth plainly. That's, that's enough. God will do the work. So have faith to bring people to a place where they have to choose between their sin and Christ. And don't remove the offense of the cross too quickly. Right? This is what we do. We say, we tell them that they're guilty before God. But when we really quickly want to give them the solution, like, whoa, don't feel too bad too quickly, right? Like, there's, there's hope. So don't, don't think about it too much. But it's okay. Just know this. It is okay, and it is good, in fact, for people to sit under the weight of their sin for some time. 
it's way better to understand that weight now than to realize it too late in hell. So that's the offense of the cross. Two enemies, your heart and the world. And as we get close to the end of the sermon this morning, I want to encourage you, though, with this question because so far it's been bleak. What hope could you have that you will run well tomorrow or in five years when you know well that your heart is deceitful and prone to wander, when you know that the temptations of the world are strong? The world is crafty. How can you ever hope to keep a pure doctrine? Do you know enough yourself to do that? How can you ever resist the world? You know that this week you failed at that already. And these things are too much for any of you. What's our hope? Go back to verse 10. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take note of you And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Okay, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Paul knows the dangerous position that the Galatians are in. He knows their heart. He was with them. He was their pastor. He knows how easily they can go astray. He's heard reports. They're not good. He knows how deceiving the world can be. He knows how powerful and strong and persuasive the Jews can be. And he's not even with them. Now he's far away. He would love to minister to them, but he can't. He can't trust in himself to correct them and to set them on the right path. Where is Paul's confidence? It's in the Lord. In the Lord. When the world's life seems most tempting, when our hearts are most prone to wander, it is God who ensures that you will take no other view. It is not you. It is not man. It is God who ensures that you will take no other view. You can't trust in yourself. You can't trust in any other. You put your confidence in God. When the things you used to run to for help are no longer there, your Heavenly Father is near. When your loved ones sin against you, When your body fails, God will never fail you. And he is able to keep you. In fact, he wants to keep you. It is his good pleasure to keep you as his own. And he has promised that he would. Our church, he has kept you so far. It's like, how can I really know? One way you can know is he has kept you so far. And he will continue to do so until the end. And so one help is if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for some time, consider all the ways that God has kept you and protected you. He's been so merciful to you in all of your deceit and in all of your sin. Right? I was meditating on that for myself this week. You know, from time to time, Megan and I will laugh about the crazy things we used to believe as a young couple dating and we would we could have very easily gone astray okay used to believe some crazy bad things and if it wasn't for god's mercy and power to keep me i would ultimately probably would have thought that i had more compassion than god and rejected him when i looked at all the evil in the world 
Okay, I clearly remember one of my biggest, the hardest times of my time, the hardest times of my life was when I came from Guatemala to the States. I did not want to come. I hated my parents for it. I thought I had friends in Guatemala. Now I was coming to a new place, a new country. I didn't know. I didn't know anybody here. I was lonely, and I came in eighth grade, a great time to move, by the way, and I'm feeling so lost and so lonely. I didn't know any better, but I was so close. The per- first person that I really thought, hey, this seems like a nice guy. I, this could be my friend. I could follow him. He was a terrible influence. He just would have led me astray into paths that I am thankful that God kept me from. And I, to, to this day, I don't even know why I didn't even follow him and continue friendship with him. I just have to say it was the mercy of God. God was gracious to me, and he has been gracious to you. Will you look back and consider how he's actually been gracious to you and he's kept you, despite of yourself? Okay, that's the important part. Despite of yourself, God has kept you. You're still running the race because of God. He gets all of the credit when you're weak and the wickedness is all around you. When bad news comes, In all of these things, we run to Christ for help because he's faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can have confidence in the midst of the many dangers that are ahead of us, that you will keep us and sustain us, Lord. Father, forgive us for our our weak faith and our doubting. For doubting, Lord, that you are good, that you are powerful, Would you help us, Lord? Would you protect our church from false doctrine? Would you protect our hearts from false doctrine? Would you continue to give us avenues to know your word? Lord, I thank you for the book study that is happening. Lord, I pray that that would bear much fruit, that that would be another opportunity for our church to grow in doctrine and ultimately in godliness and holiness. And Father, I pray that you would keep us and protect us from the lies of the world that you would give us eyes to see as we read your word and as we see and behold just how wonderful you are. That whatever the world can offer, Lord, it's not worth it. And that we have something far better and surpassing as we cling to you. Be our help, be our confidence this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.